Hi, everybody. This is the Snap No Tap podcast. I'm Joe Cardinal. Tony Cicchini. This is Nico, and we're here with my brother, AJ, works dispatch 911, and we're going to interview him and ask him some questions. So what's up, AJ? Hey, how you doing? How you doing, AJ? All right. All right. So how's everything going with 911? Uh, it's, it's been an interesting year to say the least, between the pandemic and uh, riots and things of that nature, but business as usual. Are they burning down the city by you? No, nothing like that. There's, uh, we got a small group out here that's, uh, the abolitionist group is what they call themselves, but they've, they've remained pretty peaceful. They had one night of, of rioting and things like that. I, I don't necessarily know if it was that group. Uh, but it was at the end of May, one bad night. And then aside from that, they're holding protests and rallies and that's about it. So there hasn't been much looting out there? No, no, surprisingly. Typically a pretty violent town here, but they've remained, they're decent. They're, they're a decent group. They. So how about the the violence has it gone up or or down or is it about about the same since all this happened uh it depends on what time frame we're looking at like it i haven't noticed that big of a difference um between this year and any other year but i mean the the concealed carry in illinois really is the only thing that dropped the violence it, it, it was the only thing that I noticed that dropped the violence. I know initially when the the actual lockdown started or the, the 15 days to slow the spread that we're six months into now, the there was an uptick in violence. And I think that's more or less gang related. You get, if you got a beef to settle, what better time than when you know that somebody's at home? Yeah. So is is the violence going down with the weather cooling off or is it – maintaining right now uh right now it's maintaining but we'll see normally once people start getting into the swing of things with school and and everything like that it'll tend to slow down a little bit so what's what's like your i would say your most um you get called the most on and what what type of violence is like the most prevalent would you say domestic domestic violence for sure And is it is it usually like just a man beating a woman, or is it, is there weapons involved, or? It, you know, a lot of the times it is man beating a woman. Uh, sometimes there is weapons involved. There's also, I, and I can't say that this is, you know, anything that that is predominant in any other city except for the one that I work for. But we, we have a huge, huge population of mental illness. And a lot of that tends to feed into it. So did you get a lot of calls from mentally ill people with like, you know, they're calling about things that don't exist? Yeah. Yeah, we have actually quite a few regulars that, you know, one that, that calls every single day, multiple times a day. You answer the phone because we do 911 and non-emergency. So it's like she's at least good and she doesn't tie up a 911 line but she calls nine non-emergency and everybody knows who she is. So she's just, hi, 
we answer the phone and like just goes into I just woke up and I'm having this for breakfast and she sees some weird things too. Very weird things. It makes it fun while while you're training the new people and their eyes get all big and yeah, okay, just keep talking. So as far as the gang violence, do you guys have a lot of gang violence out there? Yeah. Yeah, we're uh because of the fact that we're like a, a nice hub right in between Madison, Milwaukee, and Chicago, we get a lot of that overflow, I guess, or, or the in-between stuff. So are you, are you taking calls that are like gunshot calls or stabbings or all yep. kinds of stuff? Yep, all that. I mean, it. it I'd say the gun gunshot is more prevalent than the stabbings. Wow. Yeah, we get a lot of robberies, a lot of uh, ag assault, you know, when somebody's just threatening them with a weapon. And you'd be surprised, man. A lot of it's between neighbors. Oh, that don't surprise me. It, it's it's astounding, man. It's like it. I never would have thought. Hey, can we start at the beginning? How long have you been in law enforcement and, and what got you interested in it? Or what, what, you know, why did you decide to pursue that as a career? Um, I've been doing uh, 911 for 10 years now. Um, initially, I started off, I was going to school for firefighting. Uh, law enforcement and that aspect of it, especially being behind the microphone, uh, never really occurred to me until my wife was pregnant with our first child and that was what they were posting availability for. So that's what I applied for. And I've been there ever since. I actually, surprisingly coming from the fire aspect of things, I actually love the, the law enforcement side of things. Uh, what's the difference? What What do you like about it? That's different between the two. Um, well, at least from my perspective, uh, where being in control of everything and kind of directing things and, and making sure that, you know, the, the guys and gals that are going to these calls have what they need. Um, it, the law enforcement side from the dispatch perspective is a lot busier, a lot, a lot busier. Um, I'd be bored out of my mind on the fire side of things where it's just, you send them to a call and that's about it. How many uh, calls do you get in a shift? It varies. Um, the law enforcement side, we're trying to think. Uh, the last time I was at work, we were at 95,000 on the year. Um, so it, it's normally, it depends on the day. Normally it, it's, you know, from dispatching, it's probably close to 100. So what is it the busiest on weekends? Uh, actually, it's it's anymore. It seems to be the weekdays. At nighttime or during the day? During the day anymore. Wow. It used to be like when I first started and I was on nights. Nights was busy on the weekends. Every single Saturday, you'd have the same crowd at the same bars. And, uh, you know, it, it was wild actually thinking back to it. Like it, the officers would call you ahead of time. And they'd be like, hey we're sitting on this group that's out here. We're probably going to be 1078, which is officer needs assistance. 
you know, and just give us a heads up. And there were squad cars getting rammed every weekend. There was this, it was honestly like cornering animals. And then they'd go from whatever bar they were at and then they'd stop at every single gas station. So as dispatch, you know, we'd have that going on multiple chases and then we'd have to call all the gas stations and tell them to shut down their pumps because the group was heading their way. And it, it was weird. Like you build a rapport with the clerks that work weekend nights, like they would just know. So would you say that it, that it's key to have rapport and, and trust from, you know, the people around these prevalent of violent areas so yeah. they can inform you guys and, you know, kind of work with you guys as a team. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's what, I don't know, with everything in the news, it kind of, it, you know, I have a one-sided biased opinion about certain things, but I try to open up my perspectives and see, but it, most everybody knows we are funded by the citizens. We don't get paid unless it is for the citizens, and we understand the job that we're doing is for the citizens. Do you think that uh, the hatred of the cops uh, as, as large, do you think it's you know justified, or you think it's just blown out of proportion? It's blown way out of proportion, in my opinion. I mean, it's... Uh, People don't realize that most every single police department is not going to be staffed correctly because politics has entered, you know, the whole spectrum of things. So no mayor, no city council member, no village president, however it goes, wants to admit that crime is high. So they're always going to undersell the actual crime stats. And because of that, every police department's going to be short. So most of these calls, uh, it's a call in from a citizen that the police, once they are assigned that call, have a legal obligation that they have to investigate it. I don't think people realize that. They think that, that the police are just out bothering people. And it's like, no, most of the time it's calls. It, it's people calling in and making a complaint or saying that there's a suspicious person and once the officers have that call assigned to them, they have to, well, legally, they have to investigate it, which I don't think legally they should, but, you know, then you'll have the other end of the spectrum saying that the police aren't doing anything. It's like a catch-22. It is. It is. And I think most people would be surprised at the call volume of their, their local... 911 center because it, it's a lot higher than even I realized knowing that the city I work for is, is high crime. And when I walked onto the job, I, I was astounded at the amount of calls that we have. Yeah, I noticed the stats, like when they released the stats for the shootings for the weekend in Chicago, I know those are highly skewed because like, for example, one weekend they said, we had 50 gunshot or yeah, 50 shootings in the, in the city this weekend. And I talked to somebody that worked at a hospital in Chicago and they said, well, we had at least 50 gunshot victims come in, in this particular hospital that weekend. So, I mean, the numbers got to be greatly diminished from what they're actually saying as to what the true number is. 
And there's there's a lot of that that actually goes on because of the fact that politics has entered emergency services, which it has no business being in there. Yeah, but, you know, it also could be, I mean, because Chicago has a lot of bordering suburbs. So let's just say the shooting took place in, I'll just make up, you know, let's say Berwyn, but they go to a Chicago hospital. Okay, so technically the shooting didn't happen in Chicago. It happened in Berwyn, but they may have been treated in Chicago. Now, I'm not saying that's the case in what you're referring to, Nico, but that is a possibility. Um, You know, like, for example, where I live now, the city that I live doesn't actually have a hospital. I got to go to another city to get to the hospital. So, you know, that would skew it. That's accurate. That's very accurate. And even if uh, I I know Chicago would would do this because this is my department, this is what they do. So say it was a shooting that occurred in Berwyn, but they went to a Chicago hospital we would then have the hospital called Berwyn police department to send somebody to come take the report because it, it where the crime happened, not where it ended up, yeah. but where it happened is who gets the credit for it. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. I, I remember years ago, I was a briefly date. Well, I, I dated a couple of Chicago police officers, but I was also dating a, a paramedic and it was, the, the, the kind of like to change the subject, but the, the paramedic calls, sometimes they were nonstop. Okay. I mean, just one call after the next, after the next, after the next. Now in Chicago, the paramedics and firefighters are different. In a lot of the suburbs out here, they're, they're both. You're a firefighter and a paramedic or an EMT. So man, like those EMT call, uh, paramedic calls were like off the charts, you know, one after the other, but um, fire calls were not, you know, depending on where you're at, what firehouse, you know, they weren't as, um, you know, prevalent, but yeah, it's, it's, it's statistics are, you know, can be misinterpreted or, or purposely skewed. We know that both ways, good or pro and con, you know, I think those EMTs are like probably the most underpaid professionals they do so much. I mean, especially in Chicago, they're running. I don't know what their shift is, but I know they're running like all night, especially on the weekends. Cause I did some uh, volunteer work with them and it's, it's no joke, man. I, I think they should be paid a lot more than what they get paid. Well, I don't know what it is now, but I th- thought their shifts were like firemen 24, four on and 48 off and so on. But I mean, that's, I'm out of the loop now. So I don't, I don't know. You know, that's, I remember running into a lieutenant, this back a ways. Uh, he, the, Villa Park. I'm getting some background noise. Yeah, I don't know who's. I can see if that's your mic. Mute, mute yourself a minute, AJ. I just muted myself. Yeah, so it's AJ. Oh, okay. Got some background noise on that. Um, well, the Villa Park, and I was talking to the, I don't remember, I think he was a lieutenant. I'm like, when's the last fire call you were on? And he's like, over a year ago. <laughs> you know, the fire calls <laughs> with modern, well, with modern building techniques and, um, uh, you know, sprinklers and so on and construction, um, you know, the fire calls aren't like they used to be. Uh, 
but the paramedic calls or whatever you want to call it, EMT health related calls are, uh, you know, obviously more prevalent. I mean, it just, but again, too, with Chicago, you have to remember something. And this is, <clears throat> I think gets lost in all of this. <clears throat> Chicago has a third largest population in the United States of America, third largest. Okay. So I think people get over, they overreact when they see X amount of shootings or this or that, you know, we're, we're pushing close to 3 million people, you know, 2.6, I believe in the city proper. And then add the greater Chicagoland area, you're pushing close to 9 million people. Um, yeah, I know that outright they have probably more killings or shootings than New York or LA, which is number one and number two population wise, but still, I've like AJ, you know, his town is a far cry from the population of Chicago. Yet you heard him say it's, it's a violent crime ridden town. Um, Per capita, it, it may be worse than Chicago. I don't know the stats, but Chicago is not number one per capita for crime in America. It's not, it's not even close. That I do know. AJ, AJ, do you know the stats on that? Like per capita with crime in your town and Chicago and the others, it it, uh, it varies because it's an annual thing. Um, I, I know that Chicago is typically within the top thirty. Um, my town is typically within the top five. Wow! There you go. That's that's, that's pretty rough. You live in the hood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it makes my job fun, though. I mean, I, I can't say fun because there are tragedies that happen in there, but, uh, you know, on a on a day-to-day basis, I actually like being busy. I like, uh, you know, the action and, and the experience. How does a typical call go? Because it sounds like you've got so many calls, you can't stay on a call necessarily, right? So, like, if you hear something, oh, you know, such and such is having an incident, you dispatch it, and then you have to move on to the next one. So do you necessarily even hear how that plays out or what happens? Or do they, do you get feedback afterwards saying, oh, this would have been better, or this is how it unfolded? I mean, or is it most of the time you're just getting glimpses of what's occurring? That's pretty much it. Um, I mean, on the street, I know they're taught to treat every single incident as though it's an unknown problem. Um, you know, when I first started, people were, you know, like at the 911 center, we, we don't dispatch and take calls at the same time, which is nice. A lot of departments do do that, but we have dedicated call takers and dedicated dispatchers. So essentially half of my shift and we work 12 hour shifts. So half of my shift, I'm going to be on phones. The other half, I'm going to be on dispatch. Um, but you don't, you, you get a very small glimpse of whatever is going on. Normally it's only a one-sided story. So who knows what the truth is? Um, when I first started, people were a lot better about calling in. Now they seem to think that everything that they see on CSI is accurate. And that as soon as they call, we know exactly where they're at. And, you know, they just, send the police and hang up. So So you, when you get a call, you you guys don't know the address or nothing. And no, Um, we can do, it's called, uh, you know, some calls come in as, as phase one. 
which is essentially just a cell phone tower tower um then you can try to rebid and get a phase two location but those phase two locations are more accurate than phase one but they're not i mean you can call a cell phone company and and get a trace and they'll tell you they'll be like oh yeah we got phase two but it's accurate within 1500 meters it's a big big area 1500 meters like in and trying to narrow that down in a in a neighborhood good luck yeah that's almost a mile you know so so it's not an enhanced 911 system you're operating with correct um we are enhanced that's the sad thing is that we are okay that's and uh we're we're just rolling out this month we're starting the next gen 911 which is the texting and videos and all that good stuff. Interesting. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I can, I'm old enough to remember when they started the nine one one system. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, I remember you can even watch old television shows like from the fifties or sixties or whatever, you know, and say operator, get me the police, you know, they'd have to dial. Oh, dial zero for the operator, you know, now, now on this, uh, uh, calls, if I would assume like if it's a life threatening, like, you know, that there's a life being threatened here, either suicidal or you, you can hear commotion in the background. Wouldn't you then stay on the line until the officers arrived on the scene? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, especially with, um, Anything that's life-threatening, we would put in as, 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 say, an in-progress type call. Okay. Just because it gets the dispatcher's attention. Um, anything where it's like a, a burglary or, you know, something that's in progress, I think someone's breaking into my house or so-and-so's here and they've got a gun, we do try to keep them on the phone the whole time because it's it's the officers are going to have different things that they want to know um, outside of, like, a routine call. Um suicidal people especially we you know like on an in progress the dispatcher will take over the 911 call um just so that there's there a direct connect from the police officers to the person that's on the phone where like a suicidal person the call taker will keep them on the phone because they've already built that rapport with them and we don't want you know anything messing with that Mm, that's interesting very very interesting um yeah, so a little psychological uh, psychology comes into play there. That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. yeah, I don't – how would it work? Um, you know, like you can watch the news sometimes, and you can have a smaller suburb, right, or even, even parts of Chicago, like that are on the edge of, of another city, and they'll recruit other fire departments to come, let's say, in a case of a fire. Uh, how often does that happen that you – or your department would have to recruit fire uh, departments from different communities? It, it actually happens pretty frequently. It's called uh, MABIS, which is Mutual Alarm Box, or Mutual Aid, I apologize, Mutual Aid Box Alarm System. Um, so most of the time, these departments will have intergovernmental agreements with these other departments and stuff that uh, you know, let's say when you hear it on the news, it's a fifth alarm fire, you know, a fifth alarm means that they've, they've raised the fire to the fifth alarm. 
and they've got cards that are all preset and they've got the whole agreements already on deck so that, you know, dispatch will go pull the card and see, okay, well, we got to contact this agency to send a ladder, this agency to send an engine. Uh, you know, they even do exchange quarters and things like that so that the whatever city is getting hit with that fire, that they're not without fire protection for everybody else. So they'll, they'll have a, a neighboring fire department come and sit at their station and respond to calls for them, any other calls that come in. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I never would even have thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think where I live now, there's two fire departments. There may be three uh, that I, I know that they built a new firehouse um, a couple of years ago, but I think that's because they're building up new, they're supposed to be building up new homes here. Um, but I'm divided by a lake. So I know that there's a fire department on the west side of the lake, which I've, I've never been over there. And there's um, one here, but I don't, and like I said, there's three, but I don't know if the one is actually in my town anymore. It, it could be unincorporated or, you know, what, what have you. But um, yeah, it's, I don't even know if, if they're a volunteer fire department to tell you the truth. Um, I don't think so. I think, I don't, I don't think so. But yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, being, I was raised in a, in, a, in a big city, in an inner city, so everything that happened was strictly Cleveland police or Cleveland, you know, ambulance, uh, you know, uh, emergency squad. Um, and of course, living in Chicago, same thing. Uh, you, you you know, you have the city itself come out. But um, so that's great, man. It's pretty interesting to hear all this stuff. Hey, AJ. Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry, Tony. I had a question because I remember you told me about that you guys had a program uh, where you actually put the cops in a house in like these rough areas and how it's proved to be really successful for the department. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so my department has, um, there's two of them currently. And it, they've essentially just... It, gone through stats and things like that and found the areas where there's increased issues, let's say. Um, so they got a couple houses and they have two full-time police officers living in those houses. Um, they've, uh, it's actually a sweet deal for the officers too. Like if, if you're one of these younger guys or gals and you, you pay no rent, you just got to pay for your internet, your cable, and that's it. Um, but they get out and they engage in the community in those neighborhoods and it, they actually do a really good job at it. And it has helped a lot to bring a lot of the crime stats down because it's a lot of the times that communication comes into everything, you know, and a lot of times, like, especially the neighborhood problems and things like that, the issues with your neighbors, it's it, a lot, nine times out of 10, it's a miscommunication. Sometimes it's just a, a crazy person or somebody that just wants to be an ass but um you know a lot of it is is miscommunication and things like that and i feel that they call them the rock house officers and i think they do a good job of bridging that gap and and just working out those issues and things like that and it's it's lowered the call volume a lot in those neighborhoods so let me ask this so it's you work an eight-hour shift then? I mean, how does this – I mean, I don't, or do they rotate? I mean, 24 hours, there's a cop on duty in the house? or I don't get it. it. 
No, it's full-time person that lives in that house and uh it, they work their their normal shifts. But everybody in the neighborhood also knows that, you know, they're they're all given their phone number and things like that, so if they're having an issue, they're supposed to call them at any hour of the day or night. Pretty much. So yeah, well, that's that could be tough though too. Imagine you know you get a call at two o'clock in the morning. You know, yeah. There, there. See now, this is opening up a lot of questions for me now. Okay, let let me ask this. Okay, let's say you work from nine to five. That's your shift. Just just to keep it simple, somebody calls you at ten o'clock at night, and you end up spending two hours with this situation. Do you get paid for that? I would assume that they do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, see, that's like Chicago has like known neighborhoods or areas, um, Edison Park, Sauganash, um, I think, uh, oh, what's the one, Mount Greenwood or something on a far south side. I, I don't know that area well at all. But that, this is like a conglomeration of police officers or fire department, you know, fire uh, people. Um, and yeah, those, those neighborhoods do tend to be, you know, uh, lower crime areas. I mean, it's not the setup that you're talking about. These are just officers that, you know, because in Chicago, you have, if you're a city worker, you absolutely have to live in the city. So these are just on their own. They decide to move into this area or that area. So um, how many, how many houses like this you said are set up to? Yeah, they've got two. Hmm. That's interesting. An interesting concept. Yeah. And it, I think like for us, because the city itself is not very big, um, you know, geographically, it's not very big. So I think for smaller departments and, and things like that, I think it works and it'll, you know, I, I hope they actually expand it. it. A place like Chicago, it would be almost impossible to introduce any kind of program like that because the city's just too big. Is there a residency, residency requirement for you guys? Um, well, they're trying, but no. Okay. Well, that's, I like the county. I have friends that are county sheriffs, Cook County sheriffs, and they do not have to live even in the county. You know, they could live wherever they want to live. But the Chicago thing goes beyond the fire department and police officers. It's any city worker. You know, you could be in the park district or a garbage truck or whatever. You, you know, you, you've got to live in the city. I mean, if people try to get around that. They get caught. It's, you know, trouble. Um, but yeah, Chicago was also thinking about, well, they, I don't know Chicago per se, Certain people were trying to get rid of that so they could get other people in, you know, uh, qualified people that may not want to live in the city for whatever reason. Um, but I, I don't, that didn't pass, I don't believe. So um, I, I'm not astute enough to weigh in on the pros and cons of that. But when you have a city of 2.6 million people, you would think you should be able to recruit enough quality workers without having to go somewhere else, you know be different if the town was a, a, a city of a thousand people, you know, you may not have great qualifications out of that. You won't have the talent pool, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yeah. But specifically with, uh, let's say police work, they're struggling everywhere to get police officers. Yeah, everywhere is struggling, whether, whether you're able to recruit from a different agency or not, because everybody sees, you know, on top of the, that, you know, you, you're putting your life on the line for certain situations, but now you're putting your life on the line with armchair quarterbacks who you're going to get persecuted for one wrong move. It, it's, I know it's taken its toll on, on all the police departments I'm familiar with. 
because yeah. they're just having a hard time of getting people in. Nobody, nobody's interested in the job anymore. I can see how that would be problematic a little bit too. Like if you live in the city where you're basically creating a lot of enemies, yep. um, that would be, seem to be a little bit unsafe. I mean, if they figure out where you live, that could be it. Yep. I so mean, I, and there, is, there is logic behind having your police officers and your firefighters and your city employees invested in the city because they live in the community. And I understand that. Um, personally, I think a lot of it comes down to the cities just trying to get some of their money back and by way of property taxes. That's where I think, because it, it, to me, there's no logical excuse to force your employees to live in a certain place. I don't, I don't live in the city that I work for, but it doesn't make me care any less about the community. It doesn't make me care any less about the job that I'm doing. So if, let's say you are a cop in Chicago and you live in Chicago, do they put you in a different area when you're working than, than the area that you live I, I'm not sure about Chicago. I know, like, our department, you know, I, I can't speak on that. I don't, I don't know because the, the city I work for, they don't have the residency requirements. I would assume more than likely, though, it, it, it's they get to go in seniority order and choose what area they want to work at every year on an annual basis. You're correct. You, you can put in, like, I had a friend of mine who was on the tail end of his career. He's since passed away. Um, but yeah, the last several years or few years of his career, uh, he, he got assigned to O'Hare airport, um, which was great, but yeah, that's exactly it. Sometimes these guys will put in for certain, you know, um, districts that they, they choose to be in, um, which is kind of, again, cool seniority based. I don't know, you know. But you do have to stay within wherever you live. It's got to be within the city limits. I mean, that's you get caught, and you're in tr you're in trouble. I had a friend of mine who was um, a fireman, and part of the northwest side of Chicago uh, has a zip code that's shared with Elmwood Park. Okay, same zip code. <clears throat> so him and I had the same zip code, and he they sent out an investigator to check it out. You know, because they're like, uh oh, six zero zero nine seven, that's coming up Elmwood Park. But it's actually part of Chicago as well. So they actually came to his house. And, you know, he, he had to go through a, not a big to do, but he had to, you know, actually prove that, yeah, this is, <laughs> this is a Chicago address. So I don't know why or how he got, somebody may have tipped, it, tipped, tipped them off or they randomly, I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's you know, interesting. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how I would feel. I mean, I wouldn't, like, I, on the flip side, I knew someone who got married to a girl, woman at the time was a going through the state police thing. And um, once she graduated, she got uh, assigned downstate Illinois. And he's like, man, I don't like this. Okay, I mean, imagine being put anywhere in the state. Illinois is a big state geographically. I mean, it's not Texas or Alaska or anything, but yeah, that would kind of stink. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I just like to be able to be free to live where I want to live if I can, you know. Yeah, the uh, the state police, they're, they're almost like militant how they are with that. And that's, 
Yeah. I think they've got, I don't even want to guess. They've got a lot of districts in Illinois too. So it's like you could be sent anywhere in the state. And I I think most state police, Indiana, Wisconsin, all of them, it's the same thing. Once they finish their, their academy training, they're just assigned to go somewhere. Yeah, I would be, I would not, I mean, I, a friend of mine is a retired Illinois state police officer. He couldn't wait to get out of, out of Illinois. He's gone now. He's, I mean, not dead, but he moved like two years ago. But um, yeah, I, I could not do, I mean, the job itself is one thing, but it, yeah, it's like, where am I going to live? You know, I don't want to live in the boonies somewhere. I mean, like where I'm at now, I mean, it's rural, but I'm not that far from Chicago. I can get there in an hour, you know, um, roughly. So yeah, I would be really, Mm, you know, uh, I don't know if I, I, for me personally, I couldn't deal with that. But um, yeah, that's another thing. When I moved to Chicago, okay, so this is interesting. When I was raised, born and raised in Cleveland, I left Cleveland when I was 23. Um, unless I was on the Ohio Turnpike, I never saw state police, okay? Um, I just, just didn't do it. All I ever saw was Cleveland police, or if I went to a suburb, you know, Euclid police or whatever. When I first moved to Chicago, I was, I was blown away because I moved to the Northwest side immediately, which for those who don't know, that's roughly near O'Hare airport. So I was dealing with, I saw Chicago police everywhere, Cook County sheriffs everywhere, Illinois State Police, because of the highways, everywhere. And then you saw the uh, Forest Preserve Police everywhere. And then O'Hare, the airport, had their own, like, police, separate from Chicago, but, like, customs police. And and, and there was another agency that I I can't recall right now. I was blown away by this. I'm like, my God, there's, there's, there's law enforcement literally everywhere, which, um, you know, now where I live, it's more county police that I see, the sheriff's department. I do have, I do see local police, but that's it. I don't, um, I don't, re- I don't even remember the last time now out here that I've seen state police, and I don't see any obviously airport police. I'm nowhere near the airport, but you'd you'd be surprised how many, um, you know, law enforcement agencies there are. I'm sure there's plenty that I'm not even aware of. You'd probably know more about that, AJ. Yeah, there's, um, so I mean, it just kind of depends on, on the layout of your county. Um, cause like where I'm at, we've got county, we've got park district, we've got city that I work for. And there's I'm trying to remember now, there's 14 different agencies just within the county. Wow. And then, uh, you know, we've got a, a pretty sizable jail here. So pretty much the surrounding counties, a lot of them, will use our jail or they have court down by us, you know, so they're, they're driving through and they're, they're in Mark squads or um, even if that County has a jail and we have their prisoner, then they send somebody to come pick them up. And so, I mean, there's, there's numerous different departments, you know, and it's, it really is incredible to see the bureaucracy of everything. Yeah, I'll bet. And I'm, I'm, there's some 
interdepartmental rivalries. You know, I, I know that there's some that exist in Chicago. Uh, one friendly, I guess, rivalry is the Chicago, I don't know if they're still holding this, but the boxing between the police department and the fire department. Every year they would hold the, you know, the inner, well, I don't want to say intramural, but whatever, interdepartmental boxing tournaments. But yeah, there's some, there's some kicks with, you know, Chicago police versus Cook County sheriffs. And even within the sheriff's department, and hopefully one of these days we'll have my friend um, that's a county sheriff, we'll, we'll have him on if, he, if, he, if he'd like to be on, I want to ask him. There's different, there's, uh, you got like the bailiffs, then you have uh, sheriff's police, and then just regular county sheriffs. There's, there's, within the Cook County Sheriff's Department, there's different, you know, oh, corrections officers. Uh, so yeah, boy, when you start putting this all together, it, it, it can be quite, quite overwhelming. At least it is to me. So, AJ, did you guys have any um, prisoners that were set free from the jail out there because of COVID? Um, it, they weren't technically in our jail. Um, but I know that there was a whole big to-do where the state's attorney out here was pissed off at uh, Governor Pritzker because typically somebody who's, say it's a rape, say it's a violent crime, something like that, when that prisoner is going to be released, the local state's attorney will notify the victim. And my understanding of it was the, that Governor Pritzker released these people and did not tell our state's attorney, so she wasn't able to notify the victims or the family of victims until after it was in the news. Do you think that the release of the prisoners had something to do with the increase in looting and crime in the city? Not necessarily. Um, it, just because it, it seemed oddly specific, the amount or the, the crimes that the prisoners that were being let go, they all seem to be violent offenders. But I, I, I don't think it's played into the violence at all. I, I think a lot of it is based on just the election. I read, this has got nothing to do with necessarily crime, but even like divorce attorneys, not necessarily going through with the divorce, but divorce attorneys were on an uptick because just the husbands and wives being together, you know, when it was that lockdown, big time lockdown was putting strain on a relationship, um, you know, because most of the time, you know, people are not together that often, you know, you may be in the evening and then you go to sleep, blah, 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 or you're, you're together on the weekend. So just in general, you know, being, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of factors, I think what I'm getting at that may have increased either crime or just, disturbances let's put it that way maybe something that doesn't fall under the the umbrella of an actual crime this was an unprecedented thing that we've gone through um you know with this with this covid across the country so um to my knowledge i don't recall ever having this happen um certainly not in my lifetime i guess so yeah it, it, it you know put put a lot of people under um psychological distress i would think um on that take, AJ, 
have you, it, well, maybe it's dying down now, but did, did you notice, you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, a lot of domestics, but that's generally speaking, I heard domestic calls are, are, are always pretty much number one. But did you notice an increase in, in that specifically when, when all this COVID uh, quarantine hit? Um, not necessarily. Um, but that's speaking from my small scope. I mean, we, we also, the city that I work for, we have an extremely high unemployment rate. Um, we have an extremely high mental illness population. So I, I don't necessarily know how many people were even really impacted by the, the lockdown just because of the fact that our unemployment is so high and the fact that there's, there's a lot of people that are living off of social security because they're, they're mentally ill. Makes sense. See, yeah. we, we dig deeper now and we get more, we get more answers. Yeah. It's, um, well, yeah. And again, when you, when you're looking at a city like Chicago or the, or the spur right around there, you know, the, uh, um, suburbs that are right around there, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a toll. I don't know what the unemployment figures are. I do know uh, that Chicago still has places that are, you know, closed. This is nothing to do with governor Pritzker, but it's Mayor Lightfoot's decision, like some bars that don't have a liquor license or I mean, uh, that don't have a food license still are not allowed to be open. Um, that's, you know, uh, devastating. So, you know, the unemployment through that alone, uh, would, would have to be high. Uh, yeah, it's just, a, it's just, you know, like me, I, I, I'm not coaching. Um, you know, nobody wants to directly train. It's difficult. It's a hard, this COVID really messed with a lot of people. I mean, no, no doubt, but, uh, eventually this will all pass. And then we got to see where, when, once the dust settles, where are we at as a society here? You know, it's yet to be seen. So AJ, what's some of the craziest calls you've taken? Um, well, I mean, there's defined crazy. Um, you know, most of the calls that I take are, are to normal standards. They're insane. Um, (laughs) the ones that I haven't even necessarily taken, I was there one night. Uh, when my coworker, I was sitting right next to him, he took a call from uh, a lady who had just stabbed her seven-year-old child to death in the driveway. Um, And she called on herself. Thankfully, I didn't have to take that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of them that are pretty crazy. There's so many that I've I've forgotten a ton of them. Um, Is there any that stand out? Yeah, there's one that comes to mind immediately. So, we have a, a methadone clinic, um, and uh, it, they called one time saying that there was a, a they wanted a welfare check done on one of their clients because he was showing up on a day for treatment when it wasn't his day for treatment, and uh, it said that he was just kind of talking crazy, not making a whole lot of sense. Well, I was on the phone with her, and this client of theirs said that he was being chased by vampires and he's going to go kill some vampires. And while I'm on the phone, he decided to go run over to his truck. He grabbed a stake and a hammer and took off running. 
Wow. So we uh What's really crazy about that is that's you work day shift, which would be impossible then. Yep. Yeah, the vampires are sleeping, aren't they? Yeah, supposed to be. <laughs> but uh, then I spoke with the officer that ended up taking the report, and when they got there, he had like a, I want to say it was either a GMC Sonoma or a, a Chevy S10. It was one of those little two-seater, smaller pickup trucks. The whole passenger side of his truck was filled with cloves of garlic. Oh, Jesus. That's the same with Tony, though, but he's Italian, so. Yeah. <laughs> Should get a job working at a pizzeria with all the garlic. <laughs> I love garlic, man. Yeah. yeah, so. yeah that's, that's wild. <laughs> yeah. Vampire. Yeah, um, he's a vampire slayer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Oh, man. Damn. That is crazy. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I just can't fathom, you know, uh, in big cities, think, think like New York or, or even get out of our country, go to like Mexico City or Tokyo or something where there's even more people. The stories, you know, that people in the society like you are, the position that you hold or other positions similar, ER doctors or nurses, what, what they see. I can imagine what the ER sees because a lot of that, you don't, you don't have to report it, right? You just, you go in, something silly happened and you, you know, that would be, um, oh man, I can't imagine the stories that these people have to say. (laughs) It's gotta be tough though, keeping your spirits up. Like you said, you've been doing this for 10 years and I would think, I mean, how long do people usually last on the job? I mean, do you see people going the full, you know, making it to retirement or is there some burnout? Because I would think, you know, you've got to be amped for all that 12 hours. I mean, it's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, emergency after emergency. I mean, you're not, it's not like you have any downtime. And then at the end of the day, like you said, that's that stabbing of a child that would mess me up for weeks. I, I would be carrying that, you know, and I think, you know, I've heard of other people who have other jobs, whether it's in healthcare or whatever, where, um, you know, just the over the cumulative effect, you know, of, of seeing, you know, like in some ways we're lucky, those of us who are not in that is that we only, we see a very, um, I don't know if it's filtered, but you know, like you have like kind of a very distilled, all you get to see for 12 hours a day are the bad sides, you know, and the danger. And it's got to be hard not to be, you know, how do you avoid getting paranoid and, uh, you know, all the different effects that I could imagine could come from that. Um, everybody has their own methods. Uh, it, it, it is, it's like you said, it is very mentally taxing. Um, most everybody, I mean, we, 911 specifically nationwide has very, very high turnover. Um, it, I know that like my department, we're, we're going to be short staffed forever. Um, we have a 13% success rate wow. for new hires of making it through training. Um, some of that has to do with, with the types of calls. And there's a lot of people, like you said, it it is pretty much a filtered, uh, perspective, you know, on, on what's actually going on, because the news is only going to tell you about the big things that are going on. You know, the ones that are, are, and sometimes they don't even tell you that. Um, it's, uh, I know everybody goes through a, a, a period everybody who makes it goes through some kind of weird period where um, 
you know, they're trying to figure out that balance and they, they, uh, they find some kind of vice, to be honest with you. There's, there's a lot of them that, you know, whether it's a prescription, whether it's they go home and drink, they, um, some people use the gym, which is, you know, one of the healthier alternatives. And I think that's the way that most things are moving now, but it, uh, it does definitely give you a different perspective on life and perspective on society. Um, you know, it, it, everybody in my profession pretty much is, we all got dark senses of humor, things like that. Um, you know, so on top of the calls and things like that, you've also got short staffing and a lot of mandatory overtime, which honestly takes more of a toll than, than the calls. I've always had the perspective of, it's not my emergency. You know, it, it, as sad as some of the things might be, and there is, it, no matter what, no matter who you are, no matter what you're doing, anything that's that involves kids and animals is going to affect you more than anything else. Um, a lot of the times, you know, you take a shooting victim or whatever the case is, it, nine times out of ten, what, it, what did you do to cause this? I can't say it like that, you know, and I, I don't think, what did you do to cause this, but how did you get yourself in this scenario where you're you're finding yourself shot because a lot of it's house parties and things like that it's not you know you got caught in the middle of a drive-by and that does happen but it I don't know I I tend to separate myself from a lot of it but kids and animals will affect you differently like I, I could tell you that night that 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 woman stabbed her son to death the entire 911 center was dead silent for the rest of the night, like everybody was impacted by that. And nobody really spoke. We didn't, we just pressed forward and did our jobs and went home. I have a question for you. Uh, did you have to, or do all uh, uh, dispatchers go through, uh, let's say the equivalent of an EMT training, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, Red Cross, any sort of training like that? Yeah, so we, we all have to be CPR certified, um, and then it's it's actually, it's emergency medical dispatch, which is the certification that we have to get, and it's essentially, um, you don't have to, me- it's not to the standards of EMT, like it, okay. it not at all, I, I've already done that, um, but a lot of us do have backgrounds in EMT, fire service, or some kind of police service, so it, it helps, um, but EMD, essentially every single department is going to have a different EMD provider, I guess. I, I'm not sure how to say that. Some, some, I know that there's one company called Powerphone, and they provide books. So it, it's like a flip book. So uh, say it's a allergic reaction. There's a tab for allergic reaction, and it leads you right down into the questioning. Okay. And, you know, so that it, it kind of provides that uh, blanket of protection, you'd say, for, you know, people that some people do get stressed out about handling an emergency like that, and it kind of keeps them on track with their line of questioning and then providing CPR and things like that. It gives you word-by-word instructions. Good. Yeah, I assume that you had to have some sort of uh, of that, you know, especially if somebody's calling and you know, in hysterics, not, not from a violent crime, but yeah, you know, they're, they may be having a heart attack or they accidentally ingested poison or whatever. Um, you know, that's, that's good to know. 
So I got a question. I was at church a couple of weeks ago and uh, the priest was telling a story that he had two cops come to him, wanted to talk to him in private. And they had seen, they responded to a call with a person that they believe was just showing paranormal activity uh, and they think was completely possessed. And they were so disturbed. They had to come and talk to the priest and get it off their chest. So I was wondering, have you or like any cops in your department dealt with any kind of paranormal activity like that? Um, not to my knowledge. Most of the paranormal stuff, kinds of calls that we get are just the, the people that are crazy. You know, um, it, I, my department's actually pretty short staffed overall as far as police and 911. So I, I don't know if they've even had time to delve that far into it. I think a lot of the times um, what can be deemed as paranormal, which I don't, Nico, as you know, I, I believe in very, very much so. But uh, I think a lot of that tends to be drug-induced or a mental illness. You do run into the occasional vampire, but the... Um... <laughs> But beyond that, I did have a question too. So just in general, like what would help, what advice would you give to, you know, the general citizen of like, what things should they, I don't know, be aware of or try and communicate when they're calling? And what are the most important pieces of information? Like, is it their address or know where they're at? You know, or, or what, what kinds of things would you say, wow, this would really make it go smoother for them if they gave us this information? It, where, where you're at hands down is, is where you're at because the rest of the stuff, the whys, the what's, all that stuff, I don't really need to know that. But if I don't know where you are, I don't know where to send anybody to help you. Well, here, I had this incident happen to me in Chicago. So this is a Chicago thing. I was a witness to a pretty bad uh, accident, car accident. I was not involved in it. I was just, I saw it out where I was. And um, I called 911, and I could tell immediately that one of the persons in this in the car was in need of help. And the para the uh, dispatcher refused to send paramedics until that person, that victim, would ask for it. I said, "This person can't ask for it. This person's unconscious." I, I was not impressed. That that upset me. Uh, I was not impressed with that at all. Is that a standard reply for, for your department? No, not at all. And it's, it's a, it, it's dictated by department policy. Um, it, my department's policy is if anybody asks for an ambulance, they get an ambulance. Okay, good. Yeah. So this might've been, and I can't believe that this is a Chicago policy. I, I just can't believe it. I, I, I got to think this was a follow-up on the dispatcher's part, I mean, I, I got verbal, man. I was, I raised my voice. I'm like, you, this was unbelievable. And then uh, some lady grabbed my phone, you know, another witness, I guess. And, and she talked and I, I, I walked away because I, this person was in trouble. The, the guy in the car was, was in trouble. Um, so, uh, yeah, well, that's good to know that at least in your department, they'll, they'll send out um, the ambulance. And then I would assume it's up to the person to, to either accept treatment or, or not treatment, you know. 
Yep, and that's, to my knowledge, that's pretty much the national standard, that if you ask for an ambulance, you get an ambulance. Um, You know, there are certain things where you don't get an ambulance, like most people don't realize, like, I mean, and this also varies by department, but like my department, for instance, when somebody calls, hey, my brother's having some kind of bipolar break, and he needs to go down to the hospital for an evaluation, it's actually the police that do that transport here and not the fire, not an ambulance that comes to pick them up because of the fact that, you know, they could tend to get violent and things like that. And uh, I mean, to me, I don't understand it, but that's the policies that we send a police officer. So that's the one time where just because you request an ambulance, you don't get an ambulance. But to me, that's, that's a huge liability on any department, if they have a policy that says that if somebody's asking for an ambulance, you say no. Like, it, you're taxpayer funded. How can you say no? Good. Yeah. I, so I, I just got to throw this on to the dispatcher at that point, because or whatever, yeah. the operator, 911 operator, because it was just, you know, uh, I sometimes wonder, I mean, you know, this was a, whatever happened to the guy, you know, I, I'm sure he, he, well, he was alive at the scene. I mean, he, he wasn't deceased. But, you know, I wonder, you know, was he crippled or, you know, whatever ended up happening to the guy? I'll never know. I don't even know the man's name. But um, that's pretty interesting stuff. Now, I guess this would fall under the category of mental illness. Uh, someone who doesn't like Philly, Philadelphia cheesesteak, because uh, Joe just has a problem with Philadelphia cheesecake or cheesesteak. I would assume that's probably mental illness. If you got a call, a 911 call about that, like an f- argument over – Philadelphia cheesesteak. I'm thinking mental illness. I mean, it could be. It could also just be a disagreement. Okay. Well, we know, so we're going to lean to the side. A reasonable person sounds like Tony. You should. Uh, you should have AJ on here a little bit more frequently. Yeah, you like that you distance, balance. distancing. You can talk to me like that. Yeah, don't worry. We'll get on the mat again. <laughs> um, let's hope, right? Let's I mean, hope. All right. We. Don't, we you never know, man. Jesus, no, but it'll it'll all. Uh, but you know, even like with me, is getting back to this uh, CPR training and and all of that. You know, I, I did all of that multimedia first aid. I think a lot of martial art instructors, in particular, need to do that. They they need to be aware of a lot of things. And I've I'm big on psychology, and I studied psychology, and I'm not a psychologist by any chance, stretch of imagination, but enough to assist me in, in my coaching. And, um, you know, I guess we're counselors as well. At least a good coach should be a counselor as well. And in a way, with your doing dispatching um, or taking these frantic calls, sometimes I, I would have to assume you have to be a counselor. You have to, I would think, uh, no matter how gloomy you may think the, the, the incident is, you have to kind of be reassuring and be calming to the person to bring them down so they don't go into hysterics, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that they're, but it just depends on the person. You know, I mean, it, 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 we're not trained one single way to do it. Um, it like, for instance, my technique, I, I don't think I've ever raised my voice on the phone. Um, I just use my same monotone tone 
And, you know, if somebody's hysterical and they're not answering a question, they just keep repeating the question and they'll answer it. You know, calm breeds calm. Chaos breeds chaos. So if you're taking somebody who's in a chaotic situation and you just keep remaining calm, they will come down to your level eventually. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah. So, AJ, when I was in doing EMT school, something I learned was that that I was unaware of is that there's actually a lot of violence towards EMTs and paramedics when they're responding to these, you know, gang shootings and stuff like that. Do you guys see any, like, the EMTs and paramedics being attacked when they respond to these these violent calls out by you? No. um, Typically with us, if there's any kind of violent call like that, the police are going to, you know, so it, it, it gets annoying as a police dispatcher that, you know, our fire department is overly cautious. Um, so they ask for the police on a lot of the things that they do. Um, good for them. I understand the firefighter safety aspect of it, but um, it, most of these, the times they, and I don't, I don't understand this perspective either, but I can't say anything about it. Um, a lot of the times the fire department will stage and they'll be waiting down the block and wait for the police to tell them that the scene's secure. And that That's what I learned in, in the school. They were saying they have to wait for the cops because mm-hmm. they would respond to these, like let's say they respond to someone who got shot. And as soon as they go out to help them, the, you know, the perpetrators would shoot at the actual EMTs and paramedics that are trying to help them. Yep. And it, thankfully we don't, we don't have too much of that, even though we've got, you know, violent crimes and things like that. Uh, even as far as the police go up until recently, you know, there hasn't been a whole lot of targeting of the first responders. Have, do you guys see a lot of violence towards the cops? It depends. Um, it, it, not so much. And I mean, it's one of the things that I was able to, to give the city I work for a lot of credit in for a long time is that, um, you know, I, and I'm trying to remember, I made it, uh, what, five, six years into my career before we had an officer that was killed in the line of duty. Um, then after that first one, then there was another one. We hit a, a U.S. Marshal. Um, that was an incident that I worked um, who was killed at a hotel here in town. Um, but aside from that, not really. I mean, these protesters and and everything that's going on with that, they don't seem to be targeting the police officers. They seem to be targeting a reaction from the police officers. You know, they're looking for the, the, they try to bait the officers into taking any kind of corrective action on them so that they can get that emotional response when they post the edited video of it. So Joe, let me ask you this. In your experience, cause you were raised in Chicago um, and how old were you when you left the city? Well, initially about uh, 18, right after high school, I went out to California. And then I moved back into the north side of the city, and I was probably there from like the age of 20 to 
like 33 or something like that. So a lot of, most of my time was in the city. Okay. I can tell you guys, because I'm the oldest one here, um, and I've said this to many people, basically, even though I was born in the 60s, I was a child of the 70s. That's when I kind of grew up and graduated high school in the early 80s, 82. Um, overall, crime was worse, much worse back then, okay, than it is now. Um, it, it, there's just, to me, no no comparison. And yes, I was raised in a bad neighborhood. I get it. But there was just like a lot of bad neighborhoods back when I was growing up. I mean, the whole thing, you know, no matter where I went, it was kind of shitty. And in general, and I can remember vividly when you watch movies from the 70s, you know, they, they, they look at all the crime-ridden New York or this or that, all these cities, crime, 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 the Death Wish movies, da-da-da, all that, all that jazz. So, you know, I take things that are happening now in a way with a grain of salt, you know, uh, and I believe the FBI crime statistics back all this up. You know, there was a lot of crime back in the 70s. Um, so now, yes, there may be a slight uptick compared to what we were used to, but I guess this crime, in the, I, I, I believe, and I didn't, I should have researched this before we came on, but in the 2000s is when it just seemed to start to dip. Crime started, overall, started to take a, a steady decline. Um, so, and again, you guys are probably too young to, to remember this, but, you know, we probably weren't even born then. But yeah, it, believe me, there's a difference. So I'm asking Joe specifically because he's closer to my age and being in the city, you know, um, I, I got to think that you had a taste of some bad, bad times in the late 70s or 80s in the city, right? Well, and it's funny because in a city the size of Chicago, too, like, I mean, I, I'm kind of aware of the trend you're speaking of. So and just because, you know, like, if you're if you're kind of paying attention to politics and news, like around the gun debate, let's say, uh, the long term trends, um, you know, those statistics come up. So, um, you know, obviously, we see things like school shootings or mass shootings, and it seems like it's increasing. But when you look overall, and again, who knows if these numbers are cooked or whatnot, but if you look at the overall, like, um, death by homicide, uh, even though we have a, you know, a high rate here in the U.S. compared to maybe a lot of other developed countries, we are significantly lower than we were in the 70s. So, I mean, it's not just a kind of a subjective impression, but I think the numbers bear that out, that, yeah, during the 60s and 70s, there was a big peak of violence, and it's hard to say what's brought that down. I mean, there's there's so many factors with that, and I you know I wouldn't even begin to be an expert on that. But to your earlier question about you know my experiences, you know a city the uh, the size of Chicago, you know even though crime overall is would be higher, like you know as a kid you kind of stick to your neighborhood, and so it's how how was my neighborhood, you know? So in some ways I thought my neighborhood declined from the 70s compared to like the 90s. And a lot of that just had to do with uh, so many, you know, factors, that, you know, going on with the city and the shifting dynamics. So um, when I was growing up, it was blue collar. So there was just kind of what I would call standard American violence, you know, groups of kids beating each other up or chasing you and stuff. But it wasn't the, um, what I would call, like I wasn't in the inner city or ghetto kind of neighborhoods where like real violence was happening, where people were being gunned down. I mean, there was always a vague threat of violence, but it wasn't anything that I don't think, I think a lot of kids just growing up in America would, you know, from, like I said, uh, 
I wouldn't call it like the official gangs of the city, but just like groups of kids, you know, attacking each other and things like that. Kind of the normal level of, uh, you know, I could say young man violence growing up, but uh, things got a little worse in the neighborhood I grew up in later on. And that's just like I said, so things are moving up and down depending which neighborhood you're in. Uh, but overall, I, I, I've also heard that, you know, um, violent crime in America has been on, on a steady decline for a long time. And that's, that's a good thing. Well, one of the other issues that gets sometimes lost in this is like when I grew up, we had a total of, well, at the most, at one point, we had six television stations, ABC, CBS, NBC, and then we had PBS, which was four. And then we had two UHF channels, which were just local things, you know, and then at one point, we only had one of those. Now you have so much news, internet, 24-hour cycles. I mean, there's over-reporting, okay? So my point being, a lot of things happened back in our day and before my time. They just didn't have enough time to, to broadcast it. I mean, you know, you weren't running 24-hour news shows. You're lucky if you had 30 minutes or an hour a day of news, okay, growing up. Um, so how much can you cram in? Uh that's the thing. And now with the internet, I mean, for example, I never heard of anything that happened at Topeka, Kansas, you know, unless it was, you know, super tragic. Now you can read about it when you go on the internet, it just pops up on, on your homepage or one of the news aggregates or something. So I think a lot of us get uh, overwhelmed with it. It's, it's information overload. And I know my friend Vince and I, you know, we were talking that we take breaks from this, you know, we just can't even go anywhere near this because it, you just it's just too much it's just over and over and over the stories um because yeah if you if you have a news agency that's you know hunkering out information you you've got to try to find it wherever you can no matter how minute it may be or no matter how major it may be so um i think that skews not necessarily statistics but it skews our mentality about it because no matter what none of us were used to hearing this much information back in the seventies or eighties, because we just didn't have the outlets to give it to us. So, you know, um, yeah, I just try to, I have to take breaks from it. Otherwise you just, you just go nuts. You know? yeah, and to touch on that too. Now that there is 24 seven news coverage all the time, the, the news coverage itself has taken a huge hit because it's not about who's getting the story most accurately. It's about who's first. Correct. Yeah. You know, so there's, and, and most people, you know, and I think there's psychology that goes into that. And I think a lot of them feed into that too, where, you know, once somebody has a first impression, it's hard to change that first impression. So it's a dangerous thing that they're doing with these 24 seven news coverage where, Oh man, shot by police officer or, you know, they put it out, it, the one that I'm, I'm thinking of specifically is Jacob Blake, uh, one of the more recent ones, and it's, oh, unarmed man shot by police officer. Then they trickle out the truth that he was armed with a knife, that he sexually assaulted a woman, uh, that he said that he had a gun in the car and he was getting in that car that was filled with a bunch of kids. You know, it, the fact that he was tased, the fact that he fought off three officers and, you know, then all of a sudden the whole story as a whole is a whole different meaning than what it was first presented as. You know, and another subject 
I and and really, you just mentioned something. The word tased. I, I would like to eventually, if we can, get a guest on here who is an expert on tasers because, you know, um, they used to build it as less than lethal. As we know, tasers can kill and have killed. But we're also hearing a lot, like you just said, that this taser didn't work. We're having a lot of failures with the taser, which now escalates things. And and I'm not I'm not putting you on a spot, AJ, but I'm just saying this is a good thing that you brought that up because it clicked in my head. Because, yeah, I'm, you know, I'd like to get some clarity on this. What's going on with these, with these tasers? And you see it. I mean, you can see video clips of men getting or people getting tased, and it's not stopping them. And then you also know people who've gotten tased, and, you know, it's killed them. So um, that's probably a subject we should touch on eventually, uh, Joe and Nico. I, I'd like to see if, if we could get somebody who's an expert on this and explain this phenomenon to me. Yeah, I, I know somebody that got tased. Um, he was a pro fighter, big, uh, really healthy guy. And uh, he, he got into a fight and he was under the influence of alcohol. And he was very upset at the time. And the, the cops tased him with the prong taser. And he just ripped it right out. And they, they I mean, they were like in shock and very fearful. Um, but they, you know, they calmed him down and stuff. But it didn't uh, knock him down and it didn't really phase him at all. And I don't know if it was the alcohol or that he's just, you know, a physical phenomenon. He's like a big, strong guy, super fit, but uh taser didn't affect him. And that was probably their most powerful taser. Yeah, right. A lot of it has to do with uh, the prongs. Um, because if, if, if the prongs don't hit you accurately, you're not going to get a good connection. For the electric shock. Now, same being said, if the prongs hit in a wrong way, it's going to zap your heart and your heart's going to stop. That's where, you know, it's less than lethal. You know, a lot of the times those are drug induced too. Um, I know like PCP, for instance, people have a, tend to have a higher tolerance to it. Um, you know, so they'll, they'll keep getting tased and keep getting tased until eventually, you know, it, it throws off their heart rhythm and their heart stops. But the tasers aren't, they're good in certain circumstances, but they're, they're not an ideal weapon. It, it should not be, you know, as it is where everybody's, well, why don't you just tase them? It's like, because you have to have near perfect conditions for the taser in order for it to work properly. Is there a certain type of clothing that would inhibit the, the taser from, you know, making a good connection? Um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would assume if you're wearing thicker type clothing during the winter time, for instance, it, it's, it'd be kind of pointless because it's not going to pierce the, the jacket and the shirt and the layers. Do, you, do your police have like a protocol to follow when somebody's getting out of hand and you got to use violence? Like, is it, you know, first try to use no weapons and restrain them and then escalate to the club or the taser? And how, how does that work? Um. It, you know, I, I don't know their, their policy specifically, but there, there are very strict policies that they're supposed to follow. And I know that, uh, you know, like lethal force, for instance, even, even just physical force, there's, especially with how the spotlight has been on police brutality and, and things like that. Um, it's gotten stricter and stricter. And I know that there's, uh, 
there's definitely been a few times where, where guys that I'm buddies with would have been justified in using lethal force and they haven't. Thankfully it's turned out okay for the most part. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know specifically their policies, but I do know that their, their policies are strict and they will hang a guy or girl. They'll persecute the hell out of them if they don't follow those policies. Do you think it would be beneficial for all the police to have martial arts training? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know it, most of them do on their own time, but I, I think that should be a standard and it start them young, hit them in the academy. Yeah, but it's got right stuff. You know, there's a lot of training out there that's just going to get the cop in trouble going to force a police officer, if he was properly trained uh, to detain a person, whereas if he's improperly trained, will lead him to use deadly force. I've seen it because I've worked with police for, for, for one. And secondly, when I used to train out of Triton College, they would bring in the, the recruits and train them there. And it was literally ridiculous. The training was so bad that the, um, and we were training simultaneously and the instructor was like, well, you know, this won't work against those types of guys, meaning us, but their training in essence was pretty much follow my verbal commands. Okay. And if, you know, you're not following those commands, the techniques that they were shown um, were woefully inadequate. Um, and I've, you know, I've talked to several police officers off the record, you know, about this, it, you know, like if you're not rightly trained, you're, you're better off not even physically engaging. All your training is going to do is either going to get your ass beat or is going to force you to pull a weapon. Whereas you may not have had to go that far. <laughs> you know, if you didn't try to open up a can of worms here. So I'm very adamant. That's my line of work here. That that's where I'm very adamant that so much training out there is just not proper for uh, street self-defense. It just is going to get you in a, it's going to get you in a, in a lot of water, a lot of hot water. So yeah, I do agree with you, AJ. They all should be trained, but they should be trained, you know, appropriately, properly. And now, especially many organizations, and this was like this in the past as well, where they were barring chokeholds. They're, they're doing it again with the, with the neck restraints. And uh, when you're properly trained, no problem. I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll take you out without having to put you out. So um, I, I just wish more police officers, you know, would, would seek out quality training and separate the sport from reality. Um, I know one guy, I won't mention his name, but, you know, he showed me a video. He wanted to train police officers. And I'm like, look, man, your techniques for, won't work. Number one, look at how you're dressed. You're in a pair of sweatpants and you're doing all these crazy moves you have to understand a police officer is going to be suited up you know they're going to be wearing special you know bulletproof vests this or that holsters guns whatever uh many tactics that we could use when you're normally dressed like we are right now uh you're not going to pull that off uh you know under those restrictions and these are just things that people have to take into consideration instructors uh and sadly many of them don't rant over you know I've, I've seen that in new york i guess apparently they're they're banning the use of like any restraining techniques by the cops 
And a lot of people are saying, well, this is just going to increase the cops use of violence because they can't hold them down. They can't, you know, lay on the guy. All, all they can basically do is hit them with their stick, you know? So it's actually going to make things worse. But I think the problem is not the restraining. The problem is people need to be trained on how to restrain someone properly. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's my point. Well, Hey guys, we're, um, Getting close to the time, getting time to wrap up, but this is going to end. I mean, are there any closing thoughts or advice? AJ, do you have anything that, like, words you'd want to get out there on, you know, general civilians or things that you'd want people to know? Um, I mean, overall, I think I've touched on this again. If you need to call 911, know where you're at. And uh, don't judge anything that you see in the media until the full story's out. It's good advice. Yeah, I want to thank you for being on, AJ. It's very enlightening, and you're another one of the unsung heroes. You know, people talk about uh, police or nurses or whatever, fire, and, you know, many times you are the first line uh, of uh, defense or, or, or help, you know, 911. Let's call 911. So, you know, my hat's off to you, and it's, some, it's a thankless job many times. So I'm here to publicly thank you for what you do and everyone else that does that as well. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, we'll have to have you back. That was really good. Yeah. Anytime. All right, guys. Have a good one. See you guys next time. All right, have a good one, guys. Thank you.